0: Hi, guys. My name is Manasvi. I'm on the PGY3s, and I think this was supposed to be the first of of a three-part sort of series on um, tachycardias and arrhythmias. But you guys um, had the wide complex yesterday, so this is technically the second now. Um, I'm going to start with the learning objectives. So the first one is to understand the morphology of narrow QRS. Um, Second would be to understand the subtypes of narrow complex tachycardia. And then the precipitants of narrow complex tachycardia, and then acute management in the hospital. So, morphology wise, the um, so QRS technically should be between 60 and 100 milliseconds, less than 120 is called narrow complex. It basically reflects rapid activation of the ventricles. Uh, via the normal His-Purkinje system. If the site of origin is uh, his or above, it will be called, it's called supraventricular tachycardia and the QRS will always be less than 120 milliseconds or four or or, uh, three small boxes. In terms of clinical presentation, um, you can have palpitations are the most common way of uh, presenting. Then anxiety, uh, lightheadedness, rarely syncope with supraventricular tachycardias, pounding in the chest and um, neck, shortness of breath. A lot of patients can tell you that they had like they had to go rush to the bathroom after the episode because there's a massive release of uh, atrial natriuretic factor, which causes polyuria. And it's pretty um, it's very specific to a supraventricular tachycardia. Going over the subtypes of narrow complex tachycardia, I have these two slides on um just sort of summarizing all of them, and we'll discuss each of them separately as well, briefly, briefly. But um, there are broadly 8 types of supraventricular, um, narrow complex tachycardia, 7 of which are supraventricular tachycardia, and then there's sinus tachycardia, which is uh, not a tachyarrhythmia per se, um, atrial fibrillation, multifocal atrial tachycardia, uh, frequent uh, APCs or atrial premature comp- uh, contractions, sinus tachycardia, atrial flutter, ABRT and AVNRT, and then a- atrial tachycardia couple of things I want to draw attention to is you you can differentiate SVTs um, on the basis of three important things, which is regularity, rate, and then how fast it comes on. The atrial activity as seen by the P wave in an EKG is also important to differentiate, but when it comes to management, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, so we'll come back to this slide maybe before diagnosis and management, but just um just, just to put it out there, that there are eight different types of um, normal, uh, narrow complex tachycardia that we're going to be going over today. And um, so, starting with sinus tachycardia, it's the most common um, narrow complex tachycardia. It's not pathological. Most of the time, um, rarely it can be inappropriate, which is called. Which is known as inappropriate tachycardia, but most of the time it's in response to something else or uh, to a physiological event. It could be stress induced. It could be pain induced. It could be uh, secondary to hypotension. It um it could be secondary to just you know urinary uh, retention, which is super common in the hospital. Um, this is what it looks like on EKG or telemetry. It's um it can go anywhere from 100 to 220 minus the age. Broadly. So if you have like a 50 year old, we're looking at a maximum rate of about 170, and you will always see these clear P waves. I don't know if you can see my cursor, but just before these narrow QRSs, you will, the way I approach uh, tachycardias is I always look at the QRS first and then see the wave before and after that, right? So you can see these P waves before the QRSs. And they're all, um, this is lead two, so they're up going upright and uh, lead two, which is a normal, um, which is almost uh, um, sort of indicative of sinus rhythm. A couple of other things that you can use uh, to uh, sort of define this as sinus tachycardia. What happens is because sinus tachycardia is in response to increased sympathetic uh, output in the body, the PR interval actually starts um, coming down. So normal PR interval is usually 120 to 200 milliseconds. And if there is going to be increased uh, sympathetic uh, surge in the body, it won't only act on the sinus node, it'll also act on the AV node and increase the conduction, the rate at which impulses are conducted through the AV node. So the PR interval also starts going down. Um, uh, so we went over three different criteria for calling it sinus tachycardia, P wave before every QRS, a uh, shortened PR interval oftentimes, and then upright P waves in um, lead two. The other important subtype is atrial fibrillation. Again, very, very common, going over the mechanism. It's from multiple ectopics in the atrium. In either of the two atria, more commonly in the left atrium, it's basically disorganized chaotic activity. Um, This is what it looks like. Lots of F waves, uh, not, Organized atrial conduction, it can go from 60 to 220 beats per minute. Um, Very, very commonly seen in the hospital. All irregular rhythms um, on the monitor are atrial fibrillation unless proven otherwise. Sometimes when the rhythm is going very, very fast, it starts looking regular Um, in such patients. It's it's. It's helpful to get a full 12 lead EKG and not just go by the telemetry because P waves can sometimes be very difficult to uh, catch on the telemetry, like on the monitor. But just remember, if it's going very fast, it can look very regular, or if it's very controlled with medications, then also it can start feeling regular um, on just like, you know, auscultation or a pulse palpation. But if there is no P wave. If you can't find a single P wave in the 12-lead EKG, then it's atrial fibrillation. Atrial flutter also fairly common. Um, the second most common pathological uh, SVT after atrial fibrillation. The mechanism is very different from atrial fibrillation. It's often referred to as a cousin of atrial fibrillation. It's um, it, it's not an ectopic. Uh, uh, it, it's not. It doesn't come from an ectopic focus like atrial fibrillation does. Um, it comes uh, the, the mechanism behind a atrial flutter rhythm is a reentrant uh, circuit, and it's usually a large circuit. So it's not very fast. What happens with reentrant arrhythmias is depending on the size of the circuit, the, the rate of the, uh, rhythm changes. So, if a circuit is, is big, right, it's going to take a while for the impulse to go all around it. So the rate's not going to be very high. So macro entrant arrhythmias are slower than micro reentrant arrhythmias and atrial flutter is a is an example of a macro reentrant um, arrhythmia the mechanism shown in this picture is the mechanism of a typical atrial flutter which is usually anti clockwise and around the tricuspid valve you can have atypical um, atrial flutter and it's usually seen in patients who have like some history of uh, cardiac surgery or um, any sort of ablation procedure done in the in, in, in the atria a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation um, undergo atrial, like ablation nowadays, and then ablation itself is like burning the heart and it pre- creates scars. And some of these patients, five or 10 years after their fibrilla, uh, fibrillation ablation, actually develop atrial flutter, and it's a very atypical atrial flutter. Some things I really wanted to go over with atrial flutter is um, atrial flutter is a very regular rhythm. And it often comes with uh, two-to-one AV block conduction block. So you'll see um, the characteristic sawtooth waves that are uh, that sort of signify atrial activity, but you don't see the QRS following every um, sawtooth P wave, right? 2 to 1 is the most common kind of block you'll see with uh, atrial flutter it can be um 3 to 1 4 to 1 or any sort of variable block and that's when the uh, when that happens the ventricular rate starts going down even further um if you have a patient it cannot be so the in atrial flutter you can't have the atrial rate less than 280 to 300 right and if you call it a 2 to 1 block it means the ventricular rate always has to be 140 to 150 um with if you consider two to one conduction block so if you have a patient and um it it looks like the rate is going at 150 on the monitor constant 150 and you're not sure if if that's a p wave or if it's a sawtooth wave really consider atrial flutter as a differential because it's it's very very regular and 150 standard 150 without any variation not slowing down not going up is Almost hallmark of atrial flutter. Again, like I said, there are two types of atrial flutters typical and the reverse typical or atypical. Um, In typical atrial flutters, you'll have uh, down going P waves or flutter waves in the inferior leads, 2, 3, and AVF, which is what it looks like in the first, in the one on the left side, the the picture on the left side. And then in the reverse typical, you can have upright waves in the inferior leads, or you can just have depending on where the focus is, if it's not necessarily from the left atrium, which is a very common cause of atypical atrial flutter, it can have different kinds of like um, P waves, um, flutter waves. But if it's, um, if it's downgoing going, um, sawtooth waves in the inferior leads, it's a typical atrial flutter. The next one, the the next three arrhythmias are slightly more challenging to understand, or at least I found them a little difficult to understand in in the beginning, but they're quite interesting and they're fairly common. Um, AVNRT, AVRT, and then atrial tachycardia, they are usually looked at together, like, because the management is, is very, very similar, but going over each of them separately in AVNRT, the pathology is in the AV node, right? Some people have two different pathways, a fast pathway and a slow pathway within the AV node. The picture on the on the extreme left of the monitor tells you what it would be like in a normal condition when there's sinus rhythm at baseline. Um, once the sinus beat reaches the AV node, it bifurcates and goes down the slow pathway and the fast pathway, both, right? The slow pathway, is going to go down slowly. Um, and by the time it reaches the distal end of the AV node, the, the impulse has already traveled down the fast pathway. and um, now the fast pathway or the, or the hisperkenji um, system for the lower down is in a refractory stage. Also, because the impulse is also traveling down the fast uh, the slow pathway, it can't re- it can't go back up the slow pathway um, when it's come down the fast pathway already. I don't know if that makes sense um and then when there's an extra systole all so if for example a patient's going at 60 per minute that's their sinus uh, rhythm that means every second there's a there's an impulse going from the sa node to the av node if there's an extra systole it'll come sooner than one second and when it reaches the av node the fast pathway that was used by the previous impulse is still refractory which means it has nowhere to go except to go down the slow pathway. By the time it reaches the distal end, now this extra systole, when it reaches the distal end of the AV node, the fast pathway is done with its um, refractory period. So it can actually circle back up the fast pathway now and complete a reentrant circuit. And that's a self perpetuating circuit. Um, it it forms the basis for an AVNRD. Um, it comes, it will always follow an extra systolic beat. If you go back in the telemetry, you can find that extra systolic beat, atrial beat. Um, it can often break on its own because the extra systole that was um, that came from one ectopic focus in the atria is has now gone has now passed on and the sinus node is gonna try and take over again. If the sinus node is able to break into the circuit, the um, AVNRT self-resolves. But if it's not able to break into the circuit, if it's going very, very fast, then it doesn't resolve on its own. Um, When you look at the telemetry, often number of times you can't see a P wave. You'll just see QRS, lots and lots of QRS waves, um, complexes, narrow complex going at a very high rate, usually above 150. Sometimes if the if you're able to slow it down, or if it's not going too fast on its own, then you can see a pseudo, what's known as a pseudo S wave, but is essentially the retrograde conduction to the atria of the, um, from the AVNRD. So you can see that um, in um, your, in lead two, in w- the lead that you use, you will always reflexively look at lead two when you're looking at atrial, when you're looking for atrial activity um so that's for typical avnrt it's the most common type of a- avnrt then there's an atypical avnrt in which um instead of the pathway being completed by the fast in a typical avnrt it goes down the slow pathway first and then it goes up um through the fast pathway In an atypical AVRT, it goes down the fast pathway and then goes up the slow pathway. It's very rare. Um, The P wave actually comes before the subsequent QRS and the interval becomes very long uh, between the QRS and the P wave. Going over uh, over AVRT, again, two types of AVRTs, orthodromic and antidromic. Um, the, The direction of AVRT, the nomenclature of AVRT is determined by the the direction in which the impulse goes through the av node um the pathology in avrt is not in the av node there is a separate pathway um conduction pathway in outside the av node which um which is being utilized to complete the circuit it's also a re reentrant arrhythmia as you can see um and it's a larger circuit than an av node uh, and than an AVNRD because it's occupying a lot more space in the heart. So it can be slower than an AVNRT. The more more common of the two, orthodromic and and antidromic, is the orthodromic, uh, where the um, conduction, the circuit is completed by conduction in the um, uh, anti-grade direction through the AV node. Um, I wanted to pull up this picture of pre-excitation because in like I said, the pathology in AVRT is that there is an accessory pathway outside the AV node in the heart. Um, this can show up as a delta wave or as a pre-excitation wave in a normal resting EKG without arrhythmia. It may not, but it can. Um, and that's because most of the, while most of the, uh, the sinus, uh, the impulses produced from the sinus node are going to go through an AV node, are going to go through the AV node in a normal, uh, resting state. Some of them might, um, go through the accessory pathway. Um, so going over the telemetry appearance of orthodromic AVRD specifically. When there is, um, tachyarrhythmia, right? Because the circuit is being completed, as you can see in the second picture, there is, now you won't see the excitation waves that you would see at baseline. So at baseline, you would see an EKG with a delta wave, but once the patient goes into tachyarrhythmia, there is no delta wave visualized, and the P waves become abnormal. So in the pre-excitation or the, or the resting state, there'll be an upright P wave, or very short PR interval, because most of it is taken up by the delta wave. Uh, But and then once once the patient goes uh, develops a tachycardia, like completes the circuit, the delta wave disappears, and the P waves become retrograde, and they start happening. They start occurring after the QRS because the the atrial depolarization, which is what a P wave is uh, is is uh, indicative of, is happening in a retrograde manner. If you can see, like if it uh, this. Little accessory pathway that's completing the circuit is also activating the AV, the atria um, in in a retrograde fashion, instead of the atrial depolarization coming from SA node. And then antidromic AVRD is actually a wide complex uh, tachyarrhythmia. As you can see over here, the conduction down from the atrium to the ventricle is actually through the accessory pathway, so the His-Purkinje system is not being utilized for activating ventricles, which means it's going to be a wide complex tachycardia. I remember I said in the, on the first slide it's a it's a narrow complex uh, QRS, it's a narrow QRS complex when the His-Purkinje system is being utilized for um, impulse transmission from the atria to the ventricles for the purpose of atrial de- uh, for the purpose of ventricular depolarization. So it becomes antidromic AVRD is wide um, complex and then the p wave is again after the qrs i went over this the delta wave in avrd it's the initial slurring of the qrs complex it represents the anterograde bypass uh, track and it's absent when there is uh, no anterograde conduction or um also in patients who have like a very in patients who have the the uh, the bypass tract very far away from the av node in like the free wall of the left atrium wpw or parkinson white syndrome is the syndrome itself is tachycardia and delta wave both. Um, a lot of patients can have delta waves on their resting EKGs, but have never developed tachycardia in their life. Such patients are not called wolf, they, 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 you will not label them WPW syndrome. They have a high risk of developing SVT, but till they develop the tachycardia, they're not WPW syndrome. Um, going over atrial tachycardia, it's um it's sort of like atrial fibrillation, but only one focus. So Atrial fibrillation was multiple ecto- ectopic foci everywhere in the atrium. Atrial tachycardia is just one focus, um, constantly producing uh, impulse. Very rarely, it can be a micro reentrant circuit in the in the atrium, but more commonly, it's always it's it's a focal ecto- uh, focal ectopic uh, fo- uh, uh an ectopic focus that's uh, constantly generating impulse. Um, Couple of features about atrial atrial tachycardia that help you sort of define atrial tachycardia on the telemetry again, not so much on EKG. Um, there's, it comes in short bursts, so it comes suddenly and and go away and then come back. Usually AVNRT and, and AVRT don't do that. Um, and then there's a warm up phenomenon with atrial tachycardia in the initial five to ten seconds of the tachycardia itself you'll see the rate becoming um faster so in in the first 5 to 10 sec it might start off as like a 180 190 um beats per minute rate but after the after the first 10 seconds it it could be like 250 beats per minute so there is a very characteristic warm up uh, phenomenon with atrial tachycardia this is what it looks like. The warmer phenomenon is not visible here, but you can see these narrow QRSs. No P waves are visible. They're, they're buried um, in the T waves. Most of the time, I don't know if you can see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, over here. After the eighth QRS in the eighth speed, you can see this P wave buried here um, in the upslope to the T wave. And it's it's inverted, this is again lead two, and this is a down going P wave. So you could potentially march it out, it's visible here in the ninth beat as well, but oftentimes you can't see it at all. And then it comes on suddenly and it disappears suddenly, all of a sudden it'll, it'll go away and the patient's back in normal sinus rhythm. Going over multifocal atrial tachycardia, fairly rare i've never seen it it used to be more common when uh, pulmonary like patients with copd were being treated with theophylline. um it signifies hypoxia or increased atrial pressure today um if if you can see it and this is what it looks like basically three different morphologies of p waves because again it's atrial tachycardia but three different um foci very irregular not atrial tachycardia is a regular um, tachycardia, multifocal atrial tachycardia is an irregular tachycardia. Um, so going over the triggers for uh, narrow complex tachycardia, basically the 5 H's and the 5 T's that are um, the causes of reversible um, you know, cardiac arrest also can cause narrow complex tachycardia. And then pain, stress, and structural heart diseases to remember as an add-on. Pain and stress usually cause uh, sinus tachycardia, but if a patient has a predilection for any of the tachyarrhythmias, those can also be set off. Like, you know, if a patient has the right substrate for AVNRT, the pain and stress can cause ectopic um, beats, and that can set off the AVNRT. And structural heart diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or congenital heart diseases, multiple different types of tachyarrhythmias you can see in these patients. Going over the diagnosis, before I move um, further, does anybody have, like, are there any questions about the mechanisms or morphology of each of the, um, of any of the tachyarrhythmias? Hi, Um, I had a question related to, like, what is the clinically importance of differentiating between the orthodromic and the antidromic, like ABRT, I think? So, not in the acute state. There's no real difference uh, between these arrhythmias when you're looking at acute management. But it's uh, definitely important in chronic management because the way to treat a lot of these arrhythmias is ablation. And if you know where to look, which part of the um, heart you want to start like looking at first when the catheters are, are inserted for ablation, it's easier to find the, um, the pathway and ablate. Otherwise like ablation mapping can take so many hours like six, eight, 10 hours just to map the entire atrium.
1: Okay. All right. So, and that's the
0: clinical importance. Okay. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I had a quick question. Yep. If you don't mind. Um, so, <laughs> it, back to the antidromic AVRT. Would you see any lead inversions in that because it's going or conducting the opposite direction? Like, would we start to see different leads complexes invert? Um, yeah. So, if it's um, like this particular diagram shows the uh, bypass track in the right, uh, atr- between the right atrium and the right ventricle, right? You right. can have it between the left atrium and the left ventricle too. The morphology of QRS will directly depend on where the circuit is being completed. Um, if it's in this particular situation, yeah, the, the lateral leads will have um, reverse, like QRS will be in the opposite direction because the arrhythmia is going away from the, um, the lateral leads. Yeah, so the lateral leads in this particular situ in this, according to this diagram, would be um, the QRS will be in the opposite direction to what you would normally expect it to be in. But um, if the bypass track is on the left side, then it, it won't change the direction, the actual morphology per se of the QRS as much. It'll reflect more in the duration of the QRS. Thank you.
1: Thank you. anybody else before we move on to diagnosis and acute management
0: okay i am going to proceed one second so talking about diagnosis um we went over this narrow qrs is defi- by definition qrs less than 120 milliseconds then you look for regularity if it's not regular um it has to be either atrial fibrillation atrial um flutter with a variable AV block or multifocal uh, atrial tachycardia. It can be atrial tachycardia rarely with a variable AV conduction block, but three three important arrhythmias to keep in mind, and honestly, out of those three, also atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter are way more common than multifocal atrial tachycardia. Um, So just keep in mind if it's an irregular rhythm, try to make sure it's not atrial fibrillation or flutter. If the rhythm is regular, then you try to find P waves Many times you're not able to find it, but if you can um, see if the atrial rate is greater than the ventricular rate, right? If it uh, if it is, then it's probably a very organized um, atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia. If the atrial rate is not greater than the ventricular rate, right, then you look for something known as the RP interval. So I'm just going to go back to one of the AVNRD um, EKGs. Okay, maybe not the AVNRT, the AVRT EKG. But so the P, you, we know the PP interval is between two P waves. The RR interval is between the two R waves. The RP interval um, is between the R wave and the P wave that follows that, right? And you can, that's the RP interval. And then there's a subsequent PR interval between this um, abnormal P wave and, and the second, the R uh, wave of the second, the following beat. So you can compare these two the RP and the PR interval and see if the RP interval is shorter than the PR interval. It's called a short RP interval tachycardia. If it's longer, it's called a long RP interval tachycardia. Short RP interval tachycardia, again, you can further look at the actual uh, RP interval. If it's less than 70 milliseconds, it's almost always AVNRD. Um, If it's more than 70 milliseconds, basically if the P wave is following the R, uh, wave a little later than 70 milliseconds, then it could be AVRT, um, some AVNRTs, um, and then atrial tachycardia. The way I remember this is RP, so the P wave signifies atrial uh, depolarization, right? And we're seeing the atrial depolarization in AVNRT, AVRT, and atrial tachycardia is, is from maybe not atrial tachy- tachycardia so much, but atrial AVNRT A- and AVRT, the atrial depolarization is happening in, in the reverse direction. It's not coming, it's not because of sinus node, it's from the AV node or between the, A- something between the atria and ventricle. Um, AVNRT circuits are always smaller, right? So those are usually faster um, rhythms and then they, um, are, they are able to transmit to the atria faster. So the RP interval is shorter, This is how I remember it. It's not necessarily the case every single time, but RP interval, short RP interval, the the most common differential is ABNRT. Then with long RP interval, it's more commonly atypical ABNRT or atrial tachycardia, okay? Going over diagnostic modalities, a lot of them are not, um, I just wanted to touch on them. A lot of them aren't um, things that we do for patients in the hospital. They're mostly done on an outpatient basis, but just so that you know, you're familiar of these terms, familiar with these terms when you know you're admitting patients or seeing patients and they have them in their like background history. Um, there's something known as rhythm monitors, uh, basically monitors that are worn by patients or on the patient's physical body that record um, the rhythm on an ambulatory basis, right? They can be of three different types. We have Holter monitors, which are only for about 48 to uh, 48 hours maximum. And um, they give you a very small sort of window into the patient's arrhythmia. Holter monitors are good um, in patients who are more frequently in, um, in like, more frequently um, complaining of uh, palpitations or symptoms, generally any other symptom because if a patient's telling you that, you know, they feel palpitations once a week, putting them in a whole term monitor is not really helpful. It won't catch the event. For such patients who have, like, maybe weekly um, occurrences of um, complaints, symptoms, longer event monitors, um, known as just cardiac event monitors, are used usually for 30 days. It's um, the wireless now. They used to be, like, these heavy gadgets that the patients had to wear around their neck and you know, move around for 30 days. Now they're super um, compact. They're basically just stuck on with an adhesive uh, sticker onto the chest. Patients remove them when they're taking a shower and then put them back on. A lot of patients don't like it because the adhesive is not uh, friendly to the skin. So they start complaining of like um, itchiness in the area and uh, just it, sometimes it doesn't stick if, if a patient's like very sweaty. Uh, or tends to sweat a lot, then the adhesive doesn't stay on for too long. But like, those are common complaints I've heard from patients with event monitors. So for such patients or for patients who've not been able to, who've not been, who have like very infrequent uh, episodes, um, you have to implant a, a loop recorder. It's called an ILR or an implantable loop recorder. And it goes into the subcutaneous skin again in the chest. It's good for three years. You don't necessarily need it for three years um, most of the patients will, if they have to have an event, they'll have it before that. So it it's usually like useless after a few months. You don't go ahead and remove it. It's like a tiny, um, like this long, thin piece of like gadget that's just placed in the subcutaneous tissue. A lot of people don't even bother removing them after three years. It just stays there for the rest of their lives. But if they want, they can remove it. But the battery life on it is for three years. And it's very, very helpful for patients with stroke. You have a patient presenting with stroke um, and you don't have um, a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, a pre-existing diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or atrial fibrillation picked up on the 30-day event monitor. These patients are very, very good candidates for loop recorders because you need to diagnose the AFib in such patients to prevent them from a recurrent stroke, to start them on a blood thinner. Blood thinners um, are, are, are a very big deal, as you like learn in your first year. It's, um, you it's negligence to not start these patients on blood thinners if they if they need them but you also can't just start a patient on platina without proof so implantable loop recorders are very helpful in such patients exercise testing and echocardiography honestly not as commonly used in uh, tachycardias exercise testing is more um helpful in patients who uh, report symptoms with exertion you know um, or patients where you see, if you see a pre-excitation wave or delta wave in at, in the baseline EKG and you want to see how um, dangerous that pre-excitation wave can be, you can potentially stress these patients out uh, on a treadmill and see what they do. If the delta wave disappears with exercise, it's actually a low-risk um, pathway, and you don't have to go, you don't have to chase it, and you don't have to, like, uh, ablate it. But if it if the patient goes into tachycardia with exercise, then yeah, definitely requires treatment. Um, Echocardiography is reserved to rule out structural heart disease as a cause of um, arrhythmia. Going over acute management. So I just wanted to go over the ACLS um, algorithm. This is for um, narrow complex uh, tachycardia. Um, It starts over here, if you,
1: where
0: is it? Yeah. Over here, the second last red, the last red one and the second last like flow box in the flowchart. Um, I know you guys had white complex tachycardia yesterday. White complex tachycardias are usually more unstable than narrow complex tachycardias. So this algorithm is more helpful for that. But uh, if if you're able to rule out white complex tachycardia and the patient is Unstable um, and by unstable, I mean, either the patient's blood pr- systolic blood pressure is like less than 90 technically um, or like very close to 90 patients. Mental status is not looking good. Patients like drowsy or completely passed out patient has like extreme shortness of breath. Th- these are all signs of uh, hemodynamic instability. Um, you could do a D- DC cardio version of uh, these patients. Um, the. For ventricular, for narrow or for wide complex tachycardias or or ventricular tachycardias, you use a much higher current, a much higher voltage to shock patients. Atrial um, supraventricular tachycardias are very receptive to shocking. So you don't have to use too much current on these patients. Typically 120 is what is um, sort of indicated by ACLS, at least the older older, um, algorithms. The newer ACLS protocol going by the 2020, the 2020 ACLS protocol actually says refer to specific um, device recommended energy level for each of like for the arrhythmia. Um, But if you're not able to find the manual and all of that, which you probably won't be able to in in an acute setting, you can start safely with 50 to 100. Um, And if the arrhythmia doesn't break, you can double it. Usually, like, atrial flutters um, and AVNRTs and stuff, they break with 100 kilojoules. If it doesn't, um, if that also doesn't cut it, then you can try adenosine, and we'll go over the pharmacological management. It's more relevant in patients who are stable than unstable. Um, So I'm going to move to the next algorithm. Sorry. Yeah, this one. Um, If the patient is, we discussed... If the patient is hemodynamically unstable, you will, do, you will directly go to electrical cardioversion. If the patient is hemodynamically stable um, and the patient's um, QRS is less than 120, this says vagal maneuver. I have personally never tried vagal maneuvers for patients in the hospital. Vagal maneuvers that you can do um, are carotid massage, asking the patient to valsalva, or basically blowing into this, asking the patient to blow into a syringe um, with from the the end where you put um, the needle. So you leave the plunger intact in the syringe and you ask the patient to blow um, through the nozzle, the other end and uh, blow with the intention of pushing the plunger out. And that is basically mimicking uh, uh, Valsalva or you ask the patient to bear down. But honestly, like, a lot of these patients they're in distress so you can't i've never tried them because you really can't like ask you can't communicate so much with a patient who's uncomfortable and they may not follow your instructions plus the thing with carotid massage is you don't know what's in their neck you don't know how if there is like an atherosclerotic plaque or something in the carotid um, artery you like massage really hard I, you could potentially dislodge something and cause a stroke so I, w- I won't advocate the carotid massage, um, but you can try bearing, asking the patient to bear down and um, or like blow into a syringe. I know a lot of people have tried that. Um, if vagal maneuvers don't work, which they often don't, um, you can go to adenosine, you try six milligrams first and then the second dose, if it doesn't break with six milligrams, is 12 milligrams. Couple of things to remember with adenosine, um, it has to be given fast, right? and you have to push it with a flush after you administer it because the drug has a very short half-life, half-life of six seconds, I believe. So it needs to reach the heart before it disintegrates or gets used up for ATP uh, production. So you have to give it fast. You have to push it with normal saline flush. Um, Do not give adenosine without having the pads on because adenosine blocks AV node and SA node both, um, and it can cause sinus arrest. Also, if the patient is even like slightly conscious, let them know that you're going to give them adenosine because they are going to feel really, really crappy with adenosine. So they should be sort of aware that, you know, you're giving them something that's going to make them feel really bad. Um, and like do that for the patient. I've seen like a lot of people in, in, and this kind of happened to me also the first time I pushed adenosine. You're going kind to of forget these things, but do not do not ever give adenosine without having the pads on. Um, you can try 6 milligrams, 12 milligrams, um, and then if that doesn't cut it either, you can go to uh, AV nodal blockade, uh, blocking agents such as beta blockers and non-DHP calcium uh, channel blockers. For beta blockers, the drug of choice is metoprolol, IV metoprolol, um, tartarate. That's the short-acting one. You give it as a 5 milligram polis. Again, push it fast. Um, and then you can repeat it every three to five minutes till the rhythm breaks. You can give up to three doses. If that doesn't break the rhythm, you can try um, IV dirtiazim. Um, I usually start with five to 10 milligrams with deltaism and then repeat again three to five uh, minutes later for about three times. Um, and if that doesn't, and I've never reached this point, I've never reached to uh, the point where I've had to like give antiarrhythmics for an, a narrow complex tachycardia, but technically, if deltaism also doesn't cut it, then you can um, you have to go to antiarrhythmics um, class one C and three, or cardiovert them electrically. These are the drugs. Um, hold on. I think we spoke about most of this. Just um, also, yeah, remember with adenosine, there are contraindications. Absolute contraindication is heart transplant patients. Relative contraindication, um, patients who have like severe COPD because adenosine causes bronchospasm. So you have to be very careful in patients who have COPD. Um, With all these other agents that block AV nodes, the blood pressure might take a hit. It's not as significant as other like non-cardioselective beta blockers. But yeah, you can have a little bit of hypertension and this becomes especially important in patients who are like not necessarily hemodynamically unstable before you start treating them. You know, systolic blood pressure is like know, 95, 96, they're baseline drowsy, so you're not able to really assess too much. You give them metoprolol, the blood pressure goes down a little bit more, goes to 90 and now they're technically hemodynamically unstable. Um, don't get alarmed. It's because of the metoprolol and it should come back. But, um, if it's sustaining at a low level, then don't give more metoprolol or or deltaism. Um, I don't know if there's any sense in giving the, going over this, I, I put this table for completion's sake, but honestly, we don't give antiarrhythmics, um, in medicine, or at least I've never seen anybody give antiarrhythmics without having cardiology involved. And then adenosine also actually helps with diagnosis. So this is all acute management, right? Um, you have uh, you have a patient who's in narrow complex tachycardia, may or may not be hemodynamically stable. You have to do something, you have to act immediately to, to, to um, treat the arrhythmia. But once you're done treating the arrhythmia, you have to go back and analyze why it happened. Adenosine kind of helps with the final diagnosis. Sometimes, if you've, um, at, you've if you've had to give adenosine, which is in, in a very interesting way, so adenosine comp- if if a patient completely um, if the arrhythmia completely resp- uh, terminates with adenosine, it's most likely AVNRT, AVRT, um, and sometimes atrial tachycardia. If the arrhythmia just slows down with adenosine, then it's sinus tachycardia. Uh, hopefully you didn't give adenosine for sinus tachycardia, but it could be sinus tachycardia, atrial tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, and atrial flutter. Um, so yeah, retrospectively you can diagnose after giving adenosine if if you've had to.
1: And I think that's it. Questions? Anybody? Any questions from the St. Francis site? No questions so far. You can also type it in the chat box if you have difficulty with your mic. Hi, Meghana, can you hear me? Yes. Yes.
0: Okay, yeah, we, we,
1: we, don't have any questions, but I just wanted to make sure you. <coughs> All right, if no questions, right. I think we're done. Thank you so much, Manasi. Great job. Thank you. Good job, Anne.